Hi, this is Oz Davis with special edition of the MacGuffin Report. In this time of social distancing and binge-watching, my MacGuffin partner, Rachel Wong, and myself decided to put together a mini-series on some of our favorite, highly rewatchable movies and, and bingeable series of, of films, thematic series, let's say. We'll be back to our regular episodes of the MacGuffin Report with our third the indomitable Walter Hong as soon as this coronavirus quarantine is over. But for now, enjoy the show and enjoy these movies. Lieutenant Kendrick Boyce Dawson given a rating of below average on this last report because you learned he'd been sneaking food to Private Bell. Object! Not so fast. Lieutenant? Lance Corporal Dawson was given a below average rating because he had committed a crime. What crime did he commit? Lieutenant Kendrick? Dawson brought a hungry guy some food. What crime did he commit? He disobeyed an order. And because he did, because he exercised his own set of values, because he made a decision about the welfare of a Marine that was in conflict with an order of yours, he was punished. Is that right? Lance Corporal Dawson disobeyed an order. Yeah, it wasn't a real order, was it? After all, it's peacetime. He wasn't being asked to secure a hill or advance on a beachhead. I mean, surely a Marine of Dawson's intelligence can be trusted to determine on his own which are the really important orders and which orders might, say, be morally questionable. Lieutenant Kendrick, can he? Can Dawson determine on his own which orders he's going to follow? No, he cannot. A lesson he learned after the Curtis Bell incident, am I right? I would think so. You know so, don't you, Lieutenant? Object! Sustained. Lieutenant Kendrick, one final question. If you had ordered Dawson to give Santiago a code red... I specifically ordered those men... Is it reasonable to think he would have disobeyed you again? Lieutenant, don't answer that. You don't have to, I'm through. Okay, that's Tom Cruise playing Lieutenant Daniel Caffey and grilling Kiefer Sutherland as Second Lieutenant Jonathan Kendrick on the stand in the 1992 military courtroom drama A Few Good Men. Uh, the court case central to the plot involves the accidental death of a young Marine stationed at Guantanamo Bay in Cuba during a ritualistic exercise known as a Code Red, an expression that we learned very well by the end of this film. Uh, this movie contains all the machinations, surprises, and uses of Sherlock Holmes-like logical deduction that people really love about courtroom drama flicks and there's also a lot of really interesting stuff if you're into that kind of thing about the u.s marine corps certain practices certain hierarchical um i, don't know, I, I gotta stop using this word ritual but it but it all feels very real ritualistic to me there's a lot of good stuff in there about that the dialogue in this film start to finish is just amazing top to bottom amazing not surprising. This is a screenplay from Alan Sorkin, which was based on a Broadway play so that he had also written. Uh, so not really surprising. Of course, on stage, dialogue is well more important necessarily than in the movies. Uh, however, cracking good dialogue here. Like I, like I often say uh, when I'm complimenting a film, you know, again, not a line is wasted of this script. Uh, every line counts in this script. Really well done in that respect. However, what I'd really like to point out, and I've often said this about this movie, is I firmly believe that actor for actor, line for line, scene for scene, 
this could very well be the best acting in a Hollywood movie ever that I've ever seen. Everybody is just on the top of their game in this film, right? I mean, aside from, of course, you get Cruz and Sutherland, you know, doing their thing. But you got Kevin Bacon is great in here. Demi Moore as the as the woman in a guy's world. Uh, J.T. Walsh has a nice role in this. Chris Guest, I know he's he's one of your favorites, Rachel, uh, does a nice turn in this. Kevin Pollack is great. And, of course, at the center of it, you've got one of my personal favorites, the great Jack Nicholson. But hey, this is just me raving about what I think is what I think is one of the most rewatchable films in my lifetime. Um, it's it's one of those films where you can literally turn it on at any point and just start watching it, because you know if you've seen it a few times, you know how it's going to fall, and the dialogue is just so there, it's so tight that you want the next line. You really pick it up now. This is just me, like, raving about what I think is a great movie. I've been wanting Rachel, however, to see this film for a very long time. You have. It's true. As Rachel knows, as listeners to the show know, I mean, of course, this is probably the all-time favorite film of our third MacGuffin, Walter Hong. And uh, he's he's wanted her to see this film for a long time. And prior to this point, I understand she just watched it last night. And prior to this point, Rachel thought of this movie as men screaming at each other. How, how, how'd you like it? So that remains Oh, true. really? It is men really? screaming at each other. No, sometimes yes. they're having calm but discussions. That, I mean, that doesn't mean that I didn't like it. <laughs> they're still yelling at each other a lot. And I just can't get over Tom Cruise's teeth in this movie. All that aside. Um, no, I thought it was a great movie. I I don't know that it's it's courtroom drama is not my genre. So I don't know that I would be when I'm ordering a pizza, that this would be my go-to for a night in. That being said, though, I completely agree with you. If it was on TV and I stumbled across it, you could pick up from any point and rewatch it again, and it would be it would be a pleasure. It's it is a solidly um, directed, written, acted film. Um, I thought it was for me. This is funny watching watching this film for me felt like watching uh, Muppet Baby versions of all the A-list actors today. Hmm. Um, I know they were all famous back then as well, but seeing them all fresh faced and so young, watching like a young Kevin Bacon, a really young Kiefer Sutherland, yeah. um, a young Tom Cruise, and Jack Nicholson seems to have always been old. So, <laughs> but Rachel, Rachel, you got to understand, this was the second wave of popularity for these guys. Mm-hmm. These guys in the '80s were the Brat Pack, right? Right. Kiefer Sutherland was doing stuff like Stand by Me. And, yes, yes, uh, and, I have uh, seen that. Lost Boys. <laughs> Tom Cruise was doing, uh, you know, the one where he dances to the Bob Seger song in his underwear. All yes. the right moves. Risky business. Yes. Risky business. Okay, he also did all the right moves. Kevin Bacon was doing Footloose. Mm-hmm. That was in the 80s. This is the 90s, right? So this is their second wave. Mm-hmm. And now we're in their third wave for most of these guys. Yeah. You know, Keeper yeah. Sutherland doing 24 and Tom Cruise doing Mission Impossible and whatnot. And uh, Jack Nicholson, sadly out of the business, but we'll talk about that later. But anyway, go on and, and tell me how it is for young folks. Yes, for young folks, it does feel like watching Muppet Babies still. It's not any worse or anything. It's just like, whoa, they're so young. They were young at one point, except Jack Nicholson, who's always been old, like I said before. <laughs> oh, he, he wasn't that old. He, was, he wasn't as old as he wait to Wait to see about Schmidt 10 years later. Then he's starting to look old. Yeah, well, when you party as hard as he does. Oh, yeah. Oh yeah, <laughs> he, he had a good run 
in more ways than one. Yes, yes. He had fun. It's interesting that you brought up the directing in this because for me, uh, it's kind of like addition by subtraction. You know, Rob Reiner is not an Artur. You know, he's not a Spielberg even, uh, but he's not a Coppola. He's not a Tarantino. He's not a Spike Lee. I would agree. He's not going to put his thumbprint on this stuff, right? He's kind of coming out of that uh, TV acting sphere. Him and Ron Howard and Penny Marshall are pretty much all coming into movies at the same time. And they're all coming off of big runs on TV. Of course, Ron Howard had been in TV his whole life, but mm-hmm. he was coming off of Happy Days, which was, you know, number one show in the country. And, uh, you know, of course, Meathead is coming off of All in the Family, which was number one show in its time. And then Laverne and Shirley, which was number one show in its time. So these these are big TV stars, but they want to go into directing. Now, what happens? Well, when they get into the movies, they're doing these very well-framed very utilitarian, very actor first, right? Mm-hmm. Dialogue second. These are the kind of movies they make. Now, a lot of the time, I mean, most of the time, you get a watchable film. Apollo 13 is a film by Ron Howard. Okay, that's good. You know, it's not brilliant. It's certainly not bad. I mean, it's watchable. It's fun. But, you know, it's not very heavy. You know, it's not very, it's certainly not stylistically wonderful. But it's a nice, solid film. Most of the time you get that with these guys. Oh, yeah, it's solid. Yeah, but sometimes you get really, really, really awesome stuff. And Rob Reiner has a, has a nice run of films that are great movies. And it's just, it's kind of counterintuitive because, especially after the 70s, we kind of expect the director to make a great film. The director makes the film. Right. That's what puts it over Mm -hmm. the edge into greatness. Mm -hmm. Right. But Rob Reiner, guys like Rob Reiner and Ron Howard prove the opposite, that like sometimes the director can be invisible. Yep. And there's nothing wrong with that. (laughs) They just let everybody do their thing. And their their touch is putting a good team together and make any time a movie gets made. It's a miracle. Basically, it's it's a miracle and it takes a village. (laughs) And uh, Rob Reiner has a village of good films. And it's interesting, too, it takes a village because you notice that a lot of directors, especially those coming out of New York, tend to collect a repertory of actors, right? Mm-hmm. They tend to, you tend to see the same actors in their movies over and over again. That also helps in making a nice, solid movie on budget. For sure. Knowing the limitations of your actors and the strengths of your Mm -hmm. actors and you can cut through a lot of the bullshit first day on the set because you already know that person and what they can do i'm going to get a little bit more into reiner's films in just a moment but and really he has a a string of films that's nearly unprecedented in hollywood but uh, i'd like to i'd like rachel to to give us a recommendation on one of her and many people's really favorite movies Okay, so uh, yeah, we were looking at Rob Reiner movies, and to pick, I couldn't not pick Princess Bride. Who hasn't seen Princess Bride? If you're raising your hand, please go and rent it or watch it right now. Um, I believe it was supposed to be on Netflix at some point. There was an article that was published with Carrie Elwes's, uh book that he had published recently about the making of the film, which I also need to get my paws on. But this is a classic. Oh, my goodness. It's super rewatchable. It's just a great film. The writing is solid. Um, It's based on a book by William Goldman, 
R.I.P. He had also written the screenplay. Um, these scenes are iconic. It's incredibly quotable, incredibly memeable. Um, it starts out it, with a really charming framing of the story. Like every time I forget every time I sit down to watch Princess Bride and it starts up with this baseball video game. I'm like, wait, did I put the wrong like, did I click the wrong thing? Like what happened? And I'm like, oh, no, no, no. This is just how this movie starts. I always say about rewatchable movies that when you watch it again, you pick up, you forget stuff, you forget the particulars, mm-hmm. right? And you pick them up again. That's the joy of rewatching it, right? Say, so, oh, yeah, I forgot that tiny little bit there, right? Yeah. Or I'm yeah. discovering it for the first time. But that's taken it to the extreme, Rachel. That you can't remember how the film starts. That you get fooled every time. Well, I'm not fooled. I'm just like, wait, what? Oh, yeah, that's right. Like, you know, it's, <laughs> oh, like, so it's, it's like a, a quick... disconnect. It's a disconnect. Yeah, like in my head, I'm like, you know, it's it's horses and people <laughs> living with cholera and like not video games, you know. Uh, I'm like waiting. Sword for, <laughs> bring out your dead. That's a different movie, but I'm thinking of like time period. My brain is like get ready to be in like medieval England. Right. Um, it was shot in England and Ireland. Right. Love to go to the some of the uh, shooting locations one day. But yeah, that's where the disconnect is. It's like a quick millisecond. Like one neuron is not firing quite as quickly as it normally would. And I'm like, wait, oh, no, that's right. <laughs> right yeah, it's like taking a glass, taking a drink and discovering it's milk instead of Coke. Yeah, and you're it's like, like why is why is Fred Savage from the Wonder Years here? Exactly. Right. It's like, I wasn't expecting that. I saw him at a uh, restaurant in Los Angeles before the quarantine, by the way. I was like, wow, oh, it's Fred Savage. No <laughs> yeah, he's he's bouncing around still but uh yeah so fantastic movie there's a great setup and a satisfying payoff um it's something that struck me about this as i was thinking about this preparing for our podcast because surprise we do prepare um it's a lot of genres packed into one so it's you know there's coming of age themes in it especially starting out with fred savage's character and his grandpa and it's combined with action and fantasy drama romance there's even like heist in there yeah. There's comedy, like what, what? There's uh, fantasy. There's, there's fantasy. fantasy. Stuff, yeah, right? and you know, there's even like a little bit of horror when Fezzik is dressed up as like the Dread Pirate Roberts. Um, what genre doesn't it cover, basically? So it's it's kind of everything you want in one heartwarming package. Um, and the character de- the characters develop amazingly. It's also got kissing. It's also got kissing. So you know, be ready if you're watching this with your kids. Be ready to cover their eyes. You know. <laughs> as my parents would have done when I was very small. I would push back on that a little bit and and not say so much that there's character development, except on the part of our heroine. But I think that's kind of a standard of the love story genre is that, okay, each of these characters is trying to get to point B, mm-hmm. right? You know, Inigo Montoya just wants to, like, get revenge, you know, inconceivable guy is motivated by whatever he's motivated by. Uh, Each of these characters just has one place to get to. The only change that I really see in this film is when, you know, our heroine discovers who Dread Pirate Roberts really is. And then all of a sudden it's, okay, now now I'm on your team. Now let's go on a quest, right? Yeah, well, let me rephrase that then. In not so much that the characters learn something, 
but you get to know them along the way. Right. And they are, they become, you can kind of guess what they would do in a situation. They become very solid, um, living beings by the end of the film. Right. right. They're not just words on a page or somebody imitating somebody else. Right. They get deep. They get deep. Yes. Which is, which is not easy in, in, in a genre, genre, genre film like this one is. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, the fantasy, comedy, fairy tale, romance genre. Yeah. So what's not to love? Right. It's tough not to. It's, 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 it's easy to do shallow characters. It's easy to do two dimensional characters. Um, even, even our man, Chris Guest, and the, playing the six fingered man. You know, he gets Six fingered man. Yeah, he gets he gets some good bits in this movie too. He gets Gosh. some some character bits, I mean. Yeah. You know. There are so many fun facts for this movie. Oh, go. Lots of fun facts here. So, Danny DeVito was actually originally asked to play Vizzini, um and this made Sean Wallace, who was actually cast, incredibly insecure throughout filming. Every moment, apparently, he thought he was going to be fired because he he kept thinking about how would Danny DeVito do this? Um, but he did a fantastic job, I would say. Um, also, another casting fun fact. Uh, Schwarzenegger, who was unknown at the time, was set to play Fezzik. Okay. Um, and this was in – so actually this film was – the rights were tossed around for years before it was actually, before it was actually made. And it was in one of these uh, attempts to get – it was in one of these attempts to get the film off the ground where Schwarzenegger was going to play Fezzik. Hmm. And then finally, the film actually got made when Goldman bought the rights back from a filmmaker and partnered up with Reiner, and it it got done. Um, When they were casting Andre the Giant, apparently Reiner could not understand a word of what he said and realized, oh, you know what? I just need to record the lines on a tape. And then he was, like, understandable. (laughs) El was – he did most of his stunts apart from one flip during the sword fight with Mandy Patinkin. Um, he also insisted on diving into the sand pit head first. Um, and, and there's actually a, uh, underneath all that sand, there's a trap door, and they had to open it just in time for his dive, or else he would have broken his neck, or worse. Um, and apparently he nailed it on the first take, and that's what ended up being in the movie. Um, there's a scene also where Christopher Guest bops him on the head, he pistol whips him with the sword handle. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess his uh, reticence and reluctance to actually hit Elwes was showing on camera. So Elwes was like, you know what? Just actually just hit me just once. Lightly tap me. It's fine. And he was actually knocked out. He was actually knocked out. And that's the take that's included in the film. <laughs> See, it's stuff, it's stuff like that that makes you think, for example, Carrie Elwes knew that this was once in a lifetime. You know, he knew that this was, especially for him, you know, this is like my part of a lifetime because this Mm -hmm. made his career. I mean, he hasn't he hasn't been Mr. Megastar, but, you know, he did get on Seinfeld. He did do the Mel Brooks movie, the the Robin Hood parody. Oh, that's another good one. The only other thing I've seen him in recently is Saw. Oh, yeah. okay. (laughs) I take it all back. Um, (laughs) They need they need to do Princess Bride, too, for this guy's sake. Princess Bride and the Temple of Doom. <laughs> In any case, here's uh, here's Rob Reiner's run. I was researching this and just was blown away by, by the run of films Rob Reiner had between 1984 and 1994. Okay, good run there. Here we go. Ready? This is Spinal Tap. Pretty much the first independent film, first modern independent film ever made. Uh, after that, it's The Sure Thing, Stand By Me, Princess Bride, 
When Harry Met Sally, Misery, A Few Good Men, and the very underrated North. These are the eight films he made in ten years. Now, if you ask me, that's a pretty nice eight-movie binge watch right there. Yeah, I agree with you. <laughs> okay, so there you go. There's 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 uh, checklist number one for you to watch after you turn off this directly after you turn off this podcast. Speaking of incredible runs, let, let's go into this one though. After after Reiner. Here's an even more impressive run. Now, this is not a continuous run. I'm going to cherry pick a little bit here, but I'm not going to have to cherry pick much. Let's talk the career of Jack Nicholson. Okay? So, here is among his work between 1969 and 2006. Okay? So, you need to watch some of his early stuff, like Easy Rider and uh, Chinatown, and tell me if he's always old, (laughs) because he's... Pretty damn young in those movies. Okay, so here we go. In 69, of course, this is when he really breaks breaks into the uh, Hollywood eye with uh, Easy Rider. Then it's Five Easy Pieces, The King of Marvin Gardens, The Last Detail, Chinatown, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, The Missouri Breaks, which I know nobody saw, but it's a really good film, The Shining, The Postman Always Rings Twice, Reds, Terms of Endearment, Pritzi's Honor, Heartburn, The Witches of Eastwick, Broadcast News, Ironweed, Batman, A Few Good Men, Hoffa, The Crossing Guard, Mars Attacks, As Good As It Gets, The Pledge, About Schmidt, and The Departed. Okay, that's a pretty good 24 movie binge watch right there. That'll keep you busy for a week if you do it full time. What a career. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Now he, like I say, he has a few misses in there. I did not include Wolf, which is a sort oh, of modern werewolf movie with Michelle Pfeiffer. That 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 is not a good movie. Um, he has he has some misses in there, but damn, if that's not a good a nice list of movies. Uh, this is a guy who's won best act uh, best actor Oscar three times. Uh, he was not he's nominated a bunch of times. He was nominated for a few Good Men in the supporting role. Wait, who got it that year? Uh, I'm not entirely sure. I did look this up, but I did not put it in my notes. I didn't want to get, I didn't want to get too much into the Oscar minutia because then I would have had to have ripped apart Peter Jackson in the last uh, uh, episode. Who swept 13 Oscars? <laughs> Woo! Yeah, and who shouldn't have won half I that many? In any case, oh, come on, you haven't seen Lost in Translation. I have. That's I have. Oh, you have. Yes. Oh, okay. Okay. Sorry. Because they were going toe-to-toe. I had to see what we were up against. Oh, Yeah, like I said, the Oscars are my Super Bowl. I got to see what's going on, you know? What was it? I'm still mad that Mystic River won over Fellowship of the Ring. Yeah, yeah. Well, Mystic River. Sean Penn. In any case, (laughs) back back on the horse. Those are also great films. Back back on the horse. Um, Okay, so the task for this bit of the show was to find one movie to recommend and sort of, you know, you can springboard off of that. Well, I just gave you the list of the 24 Jack Nicholson flicks you can check out. But if I want to pick one movie with the widest possible appeal, with the uh, most amount of rewatchability and, very important, length, I'll go with Reds. Oh, I thought you were going to say Mars Attacks. No, I love (laughs) Mars Attacks. I love Mars Attacks. I wasn't allowed to see that as a kid, so I still haven't seen it. Oh, really? It doesn't come out, like, when it's, like, hot. I, there's a good chance I won't get back to it. It's it's you love it or hate mm. it, right? It's it's very like Ace polarizing. Ventura. Yeah, 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 exactly. Oh yeah, I'm on the hate side on that one. 
I thought Mars attacks, Mars attacks was hilarious, but a lot of people have no, no stomach for it. So I can't recommend, I can't recommend that one. We already talked about as good as it gets. So I'm going to go with Reds. Um, Reds is a 1980 or 81, 81 movie, I want to say, starring Warren Beatty and Diane Keaton. What it's about is it's about American journalists and artists who are living in Russia at the time of the revolution. So you can imagine this is a good old Hollywood epic. It's got several stars in it. It's got um, several languages in it. You know, there's a lot of Russian language in it, a lot of lot of English in it, some some other European languages. So I like that aspect of it. Um, you know, great sweeping vistas. Again, it's just a classic Hollywood epic movie. But again, really just a fascinating film. This is a lot of movie, and it's three hours and fifteen minutes. Ooh. Long. Yeah, it's a good one. That'll kill your afternoon. Yeah, this one, this movie was, of course, I remember this from when I was a kid. We talked about the Oscars as the Super Bowl. This was my first Super Bowl was this year because I wanted to scout the competition and Raiders <laughs> of the Lost Ark. Ah, Raiders of the Lost Ark was year. up for the best. Was up for the picture, best picture this year. It had no chance. I remember it was going off at like eighty. To yeah, one, even now, pop like movies still don't fare well. At the Oscars. Yeah, looking looking back on it, Raiders should have won. Mm. Uh, the the contest was between Reds and On Golden Pond, which was a sentimental Jane Fonda Henry Fonda movie, and uh, these were thought to be you know the two favorites. Who's going to win? Who's going to win? And then of course, memorably, Chariots of Fire snuck in there uh. because it was one of these situations where you oh my God you split the vote. Most people were going for one of these two movies, but then there was this whole other bunch. It's like, nah, I don't like either one. I'm going to go for Chariots of Fire, which is an excellent film, by the way. But it was it was by far the biggest upset in Oscar history for Best Picture, easily. Nobody saw this coming. I forget what the fifth film was, but even that was more highly regarded than Chariots of Fire mm-hmm. going into the wow. show. So, so it was a good year. That, there's another good suggestion for Binge Watch. Watch the films of 1981. Uh, yeah, I noticed you didn't include a bucket list in there. Another Rob Reiner and Jack Nicholson. Uh, <laughs> I'm teasing you. I'm just yeah. teasing you. The thing about uh, Reiner, the other thing, interesting thing that I noted was, is you look through the list, and again, he has that incredible run, but I don't know what to tell you. After the 90s, um, he he did get to the point. Where And this is fair enough, because, I mean, you know, this is something all great directors usually do, is he's taking, like, two or three years in between films, mm-hmm. right? He's cherry-picking his stuff. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't know if he's losing his edge or whatnot. I don't know if that's going on. Another thing I'm noticing is that he's taking on these bigger films, and, like, LBJ was a recent film that he did. I don't know if you saw no, that, but that was just, like, kind of, like, again, it's, like, a kind of a bigger historical kind of thing. And I almost feel like he should stay small. Mm. Don't go epic. Do, tell that small story. Yeah, I mean, if he's doing what many uh, old-timers in Hollywood do, it's probably that he's just picking stories that he seems to yeah. he He feels his, in his gut that he cares about. And that's not always like the right, you know, career choice money wise, but 
Well, it is the right career choice money-wise because he's going to get paid no matter what. It doesn't matter how much Bucket List makes at the box office. Now, Bucket List did make a lot of money at the box office. But I think that might have been a case where he's like, yeah, you know, I hear Jack's going to hang it up pretty soon, so I might like to work with him again. And I've never worked with Morgan Freeman. So, yeah, what the hell? It's been a couple of years. I'll do this picture. You know, Mm -hmm. serious, because he Mm -hmm. can. Because he can. Mm -hmm. He's made his money. He's won his Oscars, I think. He's won his awards, let's say. He's gotten his accolades. Yeah, I mean, again, you have those eight pictures. He could quit. Those eight films are not quite on the level, but think of the first eight Quentin Tarantino movies. It's comparable. You know, these are eight solid quality movies that you can watch again and again, which is the point of this podcast. Mm-hmm. So, well, I think that's a wrap. What do you think? Yeah, wrap it. Let's wrap it then. Thanks, everybody, for joining us. Uh, tune in next time. We'll be doing another series of very rewatchable movies. Once again, I'm Rachel Wong, and this is my MacGuffin co-host, Oz Davis. Stay safe, stay at home, and uh, take care.